Well, thank you, uh, Mike, and, and welcome Senator Cardin and the guests. This is our fourth uh, webinar in our new series, a deep dive on the politics and economy in the COVID pandemic. Uh, what we're doing is we're hosting policymakers like Senator Cardin, economists and experts, and business CEOs, and we're gonna try to get a broad representation of the breadth of the US economy. Uh, before we begin, our thoughts are with the American people in these very difficult times, um, but as Americans, uh, we always prevail. Senator, thank you for your tireless, low-key, and effective service going back, gosh, almost four decades in Congress, if you combine the Senate and House, the Finance Committee, the Small Business and uh, Entrepreneurial, uh, Entrepreneurial Committee are, of course, of special interest to the COVID challenge. Would you like to say a few words before I, I go to the questions? I've got two or three, but there's a, several from the audience, or should I go right to the questions? Well, Mark, first, let me thank you and Mike for uh, bringing us all together. And, uh, I just really want to underscore the point. Our top priority is the health and welfare of the people of this country. We want to get through this virus. We want to stop its spread. I just urge people to follow the recommendations of our public health officials. Let's get through this. The best thing we can do to get our economy back on track is to get through the virus so that people can safely uh, go back to their uh, activities. So that's our top priority. Obviously, uh, we've also been involved in providing direct help to the economy. Uh, the most recent CARES Act was $2.2 trillion, and we just added close to another half a trillion dollars to it, and we'll add it by the end of today. So why don't we go to the questions and answers? I think a lot of that, these issues will come out during that time. Well, you've started to address it, and that is what thoughts are on the present challenge? Because I want to talk about the present and then the future. The president, the congressional response, what should we do next? And I've got a question from ABC supervising congressional reporter, Trish Turner, and she focuses on something that's in the news now. Your thoughts on the federal small business response? Right. Well, you know, you're right. The immediate response is, is to make sure that our economy can rebound when the virus is over. So therefore, uh, we want to preserve as much of our economy as possible, recognizing that when people staying at home, uh, our businesses are not gonna have the same uh, degree of, uh, of consumer participation. Uh, the service industry has been hit hard by this. All industries have been hit hard. So in addition to dealing with the, the healthcare crisis directly, we also need to deal with the economic issues. So it's been a, really a three-pronged approach. First, uh, overall stimulus that we've done through these refund checks, uh, through the unemployment insurance compensation system, some changes in our tax code, that will help pump money into the economy uh, immediately. Uh, secondly, for mid-sized and large businesses, there's been a, a additional capacity given to Treasury uh, to provide uh, certain types of uh, capital uh, with certain commitments as it relates to uh, their uh, continued operations. And then third, the issue I've been directly involved with is the small business provisions. Unprecedented what we're doing to try to help small businesses. The largest new program is the Paycheck Protection Program. It's meant to do exactly that, to keep small businesses workforce together during this pandemic uh, so that people are, are, are employed, but more importantly for our economy, that a small business has its workforce together ready to respond when this virus uh, is under control. Uh, and that program has been very popular, 1.6 million loans given during the first tranche of $349 billion. 
uh, the next tranche, which will be uh, $310 billion, 250 to the core program, 60 dedicated to uh, um, financial institutions to serve underserved communities. Uh, that will be available, I hope, starting as early as tomorrow. Uh, we also have the uh, economic injury disaster loans and grants. The grants are new. That was oversubscribed. That's up to $10,000 grants by the SBA directly. Uh, we're putting another $10 billion into that program. And then the loan program under the disaster relief, we're adding a, a capacity for another $300 billion of loans. So uh, we are really doubling down on our help for small businesses, recognizing they're the growth engine of our country. And we have to make sure that they can get through this virus. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I, to get ready for these, I, I try to do my homework. And I, I just saw um, Senator Cardin's remarks on the Senate floor yesterday. And if you want a detailed, wonky, bottom line explanation of what's going on, go to it. Again, you just go to Senator Cardin's website and look at the C-SPAN um, uh, YouTube there. Thanks for the plug. Okay. <laughs> This, this is the present, and you and I have talked about long-term challenges, too. So your thoughts on the long-term challenges of the U.S. economy, which have always been there, but now are accelerated with the challenge we face now. Tax policy, fiscal imbalance, entitlement reform. And to get to that, I want to point out, you, do you remember January 3rd, 1987, Absolutely. That's, that's when you were sworn in. Congress. Which, which is great, but you were also sworn in just months after the historic Tax Reform Act of 1982. And the reason I mention it, you came just after it was sworn in. I couldn't agree with you more, especially now when you say we must move beyond taxing income. Do you want to elaborate on that? Well, you're right. That was that was after the 1986 tax bill, and and you're right. That was supposed to be the tax reform that ended all tax reform. That we're going to finally have predictability and simplification in our income taxes. And of course, that lasted about one day before we started changing it around. And since that time, there have been over 10,000 substantive changes in our uh, income tax law. So it's anything but simple or predictable. Uh, but the point I brought out, and the, 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 when we get through this coronavirus issue, a couple things are clear. We're going to get our economy back on track. We need to get our economy back on track. It's the most important thing we can do for our, our gross domestic product and for our uh, standard of living. But we're going to end up with a large deficit. And the question is going to be, how are we going to pay for that? How are we going to tax in order to make sure we have the revenues to, to be responsible, to be able to perform essential services, but also to uh, reduce the amount of debt we have in the country. Certainly economic growth will help us, but we're going to need revenues. So where do you get those revenues from? The United States is the only nation in the world that does not use consumption, industrial nation in the world, that doesn't use uh, a consumption tax as part of its way of raising national revenues. We are out of step with the international community. It hurts us on international commerce. We, uh, the income tax, uh, corporate uh, business and personal income taxes are not border adjusted, whereas uh, consumption taxes are. It hurts our producers and, and manufacturers. It discourages savings. Even when our economy was performing at the highest levels and America led the world, we did not lead the world in the category of savings. We're near the bottom. We don't save enough. 
And therefore, when you hit a bump in the road, whether it be an international episode where, you, where we're committed to, to using our military, or whether it, it be a, a natural disaster, or, or whether it be a pandemic, you don't have the cushion that you need as far as personal savings and the government's capacity to respond without going greater into debt. So we do need to encourage more savings. All of that can be done through a progressive consumption tax. This is not theoretical. I've introduced this bill and continue to introduce it. And as I said, we've taken the very best from all the industrial nations of the world, and we can have a consumption tax that can raise revenue and be progressive. The major argument against it from the Democrats is that it is regressive. No, we can make it more progressive than the current income tax. I would argue that the 2017 tax bill made it easier for me to meet that commitment because that bill added to the regressiveness of our income tax. And then secondly, the Republicans are concerned that it will add to the size of government because it brings in too much revenue. We put a circuit breaker in it, so it will not raise more revenue than we say we're going to raise or will return the excess revenues to the taxpayers of this country. So I think you, it, it answers the question of an efficient, predictable, fair way to raise revenue and do it in a way that makes America more competitive in increasing our national savings. Have you heard of Alexander Hamilton's Federalist 21? I've heard of Alexander Hamilton. Well, in, in, in Federalist 21, Alexander Hamilton calls for a consumption tax. Now, the only thing that I feel comfortable about, you have not yet blamed me for a consumption tax. Um, well, you know, I, you were trained, tra trained by Charles Walker, so was I. So uh, we, we recognize that uh, capital formation is critically important for a country. And that if you tax capital formation, it's counterproductive. So we know that, but you gotta tax somewhere. So how do you tax? And consumption rewards capital formation. Makes sense. Well, thank you. And now we get to another issue of great import to you. And that is, what are your thoughts on an issue where I first saw you in action when you were on the Ways and Means Committee and worked closely in a bipartisan way with Rob Portman Retirement Policy? And I have a question from our guest, Andrew Verme, who's Vice President of Fidelity, who says, what are the chances of Portman Cardin in this Congress, given the massive withdrawals in 401k accounts? And your initiative certainly would help. Right. So uh, thanks for that question. And uh, Senator Portman and I are very much together on uh, the next chapter of Portman Cardin on, on pension reform to encourage more uh, retirement savings in this country. We can divide this into short-term, long-term. In response to the coronavirus, uh, there was provisions put into the CARES Act that deals with pension issues. We are suggesting that perhaps we should be doing more, and that is ease up on the required minimum distributions so people can keep more money in their retirement because uh, they're going to, with, with the down market, you're going to see that there's the, the, the long-term uh, security is going to be much more challenging for, for people who retire. So that should be something we may be able to get done in, in, in a stimulus bill in the next couple of weeks. That's something we should take a look at. Uh, but we really do need to double down on uh, making it easier for people to save for their retirement. So 
Uh, what, what we do in our bill is we, we make it easier for part-time workers. We make it easier for automatic enrollment. We make it easier for lower income families uh, through a refundable tax credit. Uh, we make it uh, easier on setting up pension plans on, on some of the, the rules. We deal with some of the uh, specific issues that have been brought to us on the type of investments that you can do in the retirement systems, such as uh, mutual funds, et cetera. We try to make it easier for uh, uh, people to be able to save for their retirement. Uh, and that, to me, is even more important today concerning what we're going through with COVID-19. Let me ask you this. Do you think Sam Spendthrift um, and um, frugal Frank ought to be taxed the same. Um, take, well, for example, myself. I am a spendthrift. I'm a, a, a wastrel. I spend all my time uh, uh, on expensive vacations. Um, and uh, therefore, I haven't got enough money for retirement. And so I guess I just got to hang around and wait for Portman a cardin to be enacted into law. So that's my incentive to keep going. But no, seriously, I think it's a very important yeah. initiative. What is it? The average American has $500 in savings for emergencies? Well, let's be clear. We have certain responsibilities as a country. And we are, uh, when it comes to retirement security, social security system is a godsend. It is critically important. Every American who has participated in the workforce, can participate in Social Security, and has certain guaranteed lifetime income flows. That's important, but it's not enough. So if you just rely on the government program, you're not going to have enough funds for your, for your retirement. You need to have private savings and private retirements, a three-leg stool. We've made it easy for you. We thought that just having the tax incentive would be enough deferring the taxes so we can accumulate tax-free for your retirement. But we've done, gone beyond that. We have employer-sponsored plans where employers are putting money on the table. We have, uh, for lower-wage workers, we have uh, tax credits that you can use. Uh, so the government's putting money on the table. We're making it easier for you to, to save for your retirement. And if you don't take advantage of that, uh, there is... It, it's hard to understand why you don't. But you should also have some money put aside. You should have some money in savings because there are going to be rainy days. It's going to happen. And you should be able to have some ability to withstand the, those types of events. So as you do your family budget, and part of this is fiscal literacy, understanding these issues. And what, one of the things Port McCartan did was provide incentives for uh, literacy, financial literacy programs in our schools. And I think it will help future generations when they recognize if you start when you're young, it's a lot easier. Uh, we have catch-up contributions they get, uh, so people in their 50s can start putting more money away. But when you start in their 20s and 30s, it's amazing how the multiplier effect will make it easier for you to have retirement security. May I quote one of my favorite senators now? I've got your permission. Sure. Senator Cardin once said bipartisanship is important for two reasons. Number one, it lasts. If you pass some legislation, it lasts. And you probably get a better product. 
given what's going on now, and uh, you, you and I weren't around in the Civil War where we had blatant partisanship, but what is, right. do you have any hope? Well, you know, I stand by what I said. I'm, I'm a strong believer that you're going to get a better product when you listen to all the members and you have a real bipartisan process and you'll get predictability and stability in policies, which is critically important for our country. So I, I can take a look at the, the CARES Act and tell you the first part of the CARES Act that was uh, agreed to was the small business provisions. Why? Because Senator Rubio, a Republican, Senator Cardin, a Democrat, worked together to come up with a, the, uh, an agreement uh, well early in the process of putting together that stimulus package. And let me tell you something, there, there were things that Senator Rubio insisted upon, and I'm not saying he's wrong on this, but I would not have been as, as reliant on the private banking system as he was. And there were certain things that I was insistent upon, and that is to have a grant program under SBA for smaller companies that perhaps he would not have been as enthusiastic about. And when we come together, we have, I think, a, a, a more mainstream proposal that can help all small businesses. And that's good. And it's a, it, it will save a lot of jobs. It will save a lot of businesses. And we did it bipartisan. The CARES Act passed 96 to zero in the Senate. That's quite an accomplishment. Why aren't we doing this on infrastructure? Why aren't we doing this on immigration? We need We all know we need an immigration reform bill. We came close to doing it in the Senate. We did it in the Senate a few years back. Why aren't we passing those bills? Why aren't we talking back and forth? I really don't think it's the members as much as it's the, the institutions themselves have become so partisan in the way that they're structured and the way that we conduct our elections are, are, are so partisan that we've lost sight of the objective. The objective is to develop good policy for our country. So there is hope. There is hope. One of the things that you've been so generous with your time, and I agree with you in terms of the institutions, when you actually get members together, as we do in our salons, we really have an, an honest conversation and a good conversation and move forward. So maybe there is, um, there is some, some hope. Um, do you have any other issues you might want to address that are of interest to you on pending before the Finance Committee or the Small Business Committee? Well, first, let me tell you, I hope that we will uh, be able to reconvene the salons. You may have to do some social distancing for a while, but we'll figure that out. Uh, this is uh, challenging to conduct our business uh, through um, electronic means. It's, it's, it's so much easier when we can do it in person. But yes, uh, we, we, what I said earlier, we, we need to deal with infrastructure in this country. One of the, I, I talked to the boards of education and superintendents of schools. They told us before the coronavirus that they didn't have enough technology to deal with distance learning because learning doesn't end at the end of the, uh, of the school day at, in the classroom. And now we know when you can't be in the classroom how critically important that infrastructure is for this country. So we have to double down on uh, our uh, infrastructure on connectivity. Uh, we got to double down on transportation. We, we desperately need a, a modern transportation system in this country. We got to double down on our energy infrastructure. We got to double down uh, on our water infrastructure in this country. So we really do need to come together. And I've got that's not a partisan issue. I've got a question here that uh, concerns me a lot personally, and that is the growth of um, 
nationalism, just extremism and whatever, and the populism, the bad type of populism. And here's a question. Some say COVID-19 epidemic could enhance nationalism, protectionism, deglobalization. What is your thought about this end and how can we deal with it? Well, I don't know if I would blame COVID-19 for this because we saw these trends before COVID-19 was even known. So we've seen a trend towards isolation, towards blaming anyone who doesn't look like us as part of the problem and restrictions on our borders. That was occurred well before the virus. This virus now has given excuses to, to, to use that uh, philosophy to try to double down. We saw that in our own country, which I think is wrong. We, yes, you, you need to protect against people's travel. That's legitimate. But don't try to stop the values that made this nation the great nation it is, and that is being a global leader and engaging the global community because that's where we are. We're not going to change that. We're in a global economy, and whether it's health issues or whether it's economic issues, we're in a global economy, and we have to participate and lead in that global economy. And part of that is trade policy. What do you see as the future for trade policy with what's going on? Absolutely. Uh, we, we have to engage on trade. Uh, we, it's two parts to that. First of all, yes, and I... I We'll see how the USMCA is implemented. That was a, a major uh, uh, accomplishment. We have a real problem in this, uh, with the uh, uh, TPP. We should never pull down of that agreement. We've ceded too much to China in, in not organizing the market economies of Asia in a better way. Uh, we should have done that and to bring over some non-market economies to market economy rules. That was an opportunity in TPP. Uh, that we did not take uh, advantage of. You've got to re-engage. China is a major competitor, uh, and that's fine, but as long as we play according to fair rules, and that is market economy rules, don't let China try to dictate through a government-controlled economy rules. We don't want that to happen. And the second part of all this is that we need labor. I'm out, I can tell you, my uh, watermen in the Eastern Shore of Maryland, if we don't have some fair way to, to allow for uh, visas for workers, we're going to have a real problem dealing with the continuation of our seafood industry. So we also have to recognize that we have a need uh, in regards to uh, uh, the workers in this country. And you still have passion. Well, it's, these are challenging times. I think all of us recognize that what we're doing today is probably more important than ever before because Democratic institutions are being challenged, uh, and the, the, the framework of our economy is being challenged. And we've we got to make sure that we uh, preserve this for our future generations. Well, I want to thank you, and I bring this to a close because I know about your schedule. And so many thanks uh, for you being what I believe a U.S. senator should be, and that is an effective public policy uh, legislator. Um, we want to thank you for your time. Um, for your information, this is going to be on our web. Um, we are, um, we've got an outstanding, we're getting a lot of bookings. Uh, we're going to have small business here, Karen Kerrigan. We're going to have sectors of the American economy. Jim Matheson, I don't know if you remember him when you were in sure. He now runs the NRACA. Uh, oh, the, you might get a kick out of this. I decided to have a real doctor. 
And as you know, there are 14 or so doctors in the United States Congress. So Dr. Phil Rowe is gonna be with us. We gotta have balance. So your colleague, Senator Ron Johnson, Doug Holtz-Eakin, um, I'd welcome your suggestions or any suggestions for this program. Uh, one of the thoughts I did have about our, um, about our salons is, gosh, gosh darn, we've got technology. We may try to do one online. Uh, mm -hmm. Just have 15 participants and you've got the little boxes. And I think that's, that's something with your help I'd like to continue. Um, so uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, stay safe. Um, and um, as you and I know, or believe strongly, we will prevail over the COVID-19. Senator, thank you. Absolutely, Mark. It's a pleasure always to be with you and keep your passion on this issue and we need it. Thank you. Take care.